0: Well, the truth, the teaching, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone is undoubtedly a doctrine that has been often attacked throughout church history, often marginalized, overlooked, belittled, and at one time altogether forgotten. And it was the Reformation that wondrously recovered the truth of salvation by grace alone, and we praise God for his providence in bringing about the events of the Reformation. In the Reformation, we recovered anew the truth that a sinner is saved by grace and grace alone. He doesn't work with grace. He doesn't strive so as to partner with grace. Grace doesn't see what his response would be and on that basis act. But by grace and grace alone, a man is saved. Notwithstanding the good that the Reformation brought about in that respect, there needs to be a continual return to the truth of grace alone, a continual reformation, as it were, in our own hearts each and every day. There has to be a reformation on a daily basis, re-establishing the truth that we do not contribute to the saving act of the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of this reality day by day, and indeed every single Sunday when we gather together. Corporately, it is critically important that we remember and rehearse and rejoice in the fact that God saved us by grace and grace alone. If you can keep in view the truth of grace alone in your salvation, it will shape the way you live. The truth of salvation by grace alone shapes the way in which you think about God, the way in which you worship Him. It shapes the way you think about your circumstances in your life. The truth of grace alone shapes the way in which you conduct yourself. As a Christian, not only in the church, but in a lost and hopeless world, the truth of grace alone as the bedrock of your salvation affects your entire life. So, Romans chapter 5 is a wonderful text to give our attention to in order to remind ourselves of this truth. And I don't imagine for most of you that anything I'll say this morning will be something you have not heard before. Most likely, everything I'm going to say, you know, and in that sense, it functions simply as a reminder, but a critically important reminder because of the importance of grace alone within the economy of the gospel. The way Paul makes his argument, the way he shows us this wonderful truth, is by painting for us a picture of two domains. He shows us the domain, first of all, of death. A domain of death in which we all once lived. A domain of death that we were all inescapably trapped within and could not escape. Paul then transitions in his argument to show us the domain of life. A domain of life that is wonderful, is glorious, depicts in many senses the way in which life was intended to be lived. And as he shows us these two domains, one the domain of death and the other domain of life, the question then becomes how might we transition from one to the other? How is it possible for a person to move from the domain of death in which we are inescapably trapped so as to find themselves within the domain of life? And the only answer is by grace. The way in which you can move from the domain of death into the domain of life is grace and grace alone. That is, in summary form, the argument of Romans 5, 12-21, And I want to work through those three ideas in that order, considering first the domain of death. That's where Paul begins, saying verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. He introduces us to the domain of death, beginning where all stories ought to begin, at the very, very start on the first page of our Bibles making reference to the one man, Adam. And Paul has in mind that Genesis narrative as he explains to us the consequences of Adam's transgression. Adam was appointed as God's vice-regent. Adam was God's representative on earth. We see in the creation account the wonder and the glory of God's creative power as he speaks and he brings the universe into being. And there is a a rhythm established all the way through Genesis 1 where God spoke and it was and he saw and it was good. And then as the climax, as the pinnacle of his creative work, he sets mankind on top over everything else that he has created. A privileged position in which Adam sits as he presides over the created order as God's image bearer. Nothing else that he ever created bears his image, only mankind. We are his representatives. That's our purpose here on earth. And then, very shortly after, it all came crashing down. The serpent came into the garden the serpent assaulted not only God's testimony, his command, his instruction, but God himself. When the serpent said, did God really say, he's attacking God's character, undermining his trustworthiness. And as Eve gives ear to the serpent's testimony, and as she transgresses and as Adam follows They are in that moment better imaging the serpent than they are imaging God. Our role, our responsibility is to represent our creator. And as they listen to the serpent, as they then themselves distort the truth, they are representing the serpent more than they are representing God himself. They are the image bearer of the serpent as they sin. And as the head over all of creation, the consequences for Adam's sin are catastrophic. They are universal. They are extensive. There is nothing left untouched by Adam's sin. All of humanity comes crashing down. The whole universe is now tainted forever after by sin. Sin enters into the world at that moment and nothing will ever be the same again. Cancer is now a reality. Stillborn babies are now a reality. Disabilities are now a reality. Sickness and old age is now a reality. All of it ultimately ending in death. You see the cause and effect chain that Paul draws out for us. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And death spread to all men because all sinned, Paul goes on to say. And so what Paul is doing for us is portraying a prison cell that is universal in its scope, in which we all find ourselves, all culpable all guilty before our Creator. Now, on what basis can Paul say that we are all guilty? Well, he actually makes the argument based on two accounts. There are two ways in which Paul says we stand guilty before God. The first is simply because we all, like Adam, have sinned. Death spread to all men. Why? Because, he says, all sinned. There's an awful lot of debate over the meaning of that one word, because. Some would suggest, actually, Paul does not have in view our individual acts of sinning, but a corporate guilt imputed to us by Adam's one sin. That is true, and Paul will get there later on in the text. Right here in verse 12, I actually have no problem with the translation because I do think Paul is pointing to individual acts of sin here. In the likeness of Adam, every single person after him also transgressed against our maker. In fact, in support of that, Paul seems to be in verse 13 responding to a possible objection. In verse 13 he says, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now what's he saying? The objection perhaps would go something like this, if, if you say we are all guilty because of our own sin, what about those folks that lived between Adam and Moses before the law had been given? Because up until now, in the book of Romans, Paul has been emphatically and consistently teaching that sin is measured by transgressing the law. That's the benchmark by which we understand our sin. We broke the rules. So the possible objection is, well, what about the time when there were no rules? When the law had not been given between Adam and Moses? And so Paul responds to that objection and says sin was still in the world during that time. To be sure, it's not counted, and that one word there means it is not exacted. It's not recorded in an accounting sense in the way that sin is recorded when the law has been put in place. The exacting of sin is not the same before the law was given, but that does not mean in any way that there was not a continuous rebellion in people's hearts against God. Sin was still in the world, says Paul. And so for that reason, because every single person after Adam has sinned, verse 14, death reigned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses and thereafter. The other basis on which we stand guilty before God, in addition to our own individual sins, is that imputed guilt from Adam's one sin. And Paul does go there in his argument. Look down at verse 18 by way of example. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, this is a different kind of guilt. One trespass. Adam's one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So now, Paul does not have in view the notion that we all individually, by our own volition, have sinned. And by that measure, we stand guilty But on a different basis, because Adam, who is our representative head, he stands over all of creation as the head because of his one trespass. We are now counted guilty without seeking in any way to address the question of fairness. Paul simply states it as a fact that because Adam is our head, we all stand guilty in him. And so rightly it has been said that our guilt before God is double because we have all sinned in and with Adam. We have all sinned in and with Adam. We all stand guilty and that double guilt is no accident. Paul is drawing attention to it and showing it to us in many different ways, so as to impress upon us the inescapable nature of the domain of death. Lest anyone dare think there might be an escape route out of this prison cell. Lest anyone think that they might be able to get themselves out of this mess, Paul shows that we are doubly guilty. In and with Adam, we have all sinned. And so we all stand rightly condemned and death reigns over all of us. This is the domain of death. This is a biblical anthropology. You want to study the species of mankind. You want to give time and thought as to to what it means to be a person. You need to start in Romans chapter 5 and you learn what it means to be a human being is that you are in the domain of death, doubly so, rightly so, all of us condemned unto death. And this is the beginning, the foundation, the precursor to understanding the glory of God's grace. And just as the glory of God's grace has been lost, So often throughout church history, so also has the realities concerning the domain of death. There are ever-present societal trends, ways of thinking that attack the truths that Paul is giving to us here. We have seen in the West over the last half-decade... 60, 70 years, the rise of secularism. Now, what does that mean? We don't need to overcomplicate that term. The rise of secularism simply means an ever increasing attempt to explain the world around us without any appeal to God. Secular thought simply means I'm going to explain everything I can see without, without appealing to the, the idea of a higher being. I'm going to shut God out from my thoughts, shut God out from my reasoning, shut God out from my explanations, and pursue a secular line of thinking. And the increase of secularism in the West over the last 50 years or so has had with it attendant themes. With it, unsurprisingly, has come a decreasing belief in God. It should be no surprise that at a societal level with the rise of secularism has come a decreasing belief in the existence of God. It is atheism's heyday right now. And then the other side of that coin is an increasing belief in our own self-sufficiency. With the rise of secularism has come an increasing belief in our own self-sufficiency. God has been shut out from all public discourse. We're not allowed Him in our conversations and in our reasoning as we try to explain the world around us. And so invariably over time there has been an increase in our understanding of our own ability. We really think we're something. We really think we can achieve something in our own strength. And when you start to speak about the mess that we find ourselves in, we really start to believe that we can get ourselves out of it. And Paul, by contrast, asserts that there is a domain of death that is an inescapable prison cell. And you cannot, in and of yourself, find a way out. Out of it. And you need to keep the domain of death ever present before you. You need to refresh your minds and your hearts to the truth of the domain of death. If you are to understand the glories of God's grace. Now Paul moves from there into a discussion about the domain of life. He's already hinted at it in verse 14 when he talks about Adam as a type, a type of the one who was to come. So he's saying that in some way Adam prefigured another individual, He says that in some way, Adam shows us, patterns for us, something of one who was to come. And then he moves into this glorious discussion of the domain of life. And he does so by way of a series of comparisons. The first comparison he makes is of the two representative heads. Verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more of the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So the first difference is that the domain of life has over it a different man. Adam sits over the domain of death. The domain of life has over it Jesus Christ. And as Paul invokes his name there, I do believe Paul has in view the sum total of Jesus Christ, the totality of Christ, not least his sinless life, his sin-atoning death, and his glorious resurrection. He brings into view the whole Christ as the means by which the domain of life is made a possibility And with Jesus Christ established as the head over this domain, his next comparison concerns our status. Our status in the domain of life is altogether different. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see, this is how we begin to understand the much mores of Romans 5. You read through the entire chapter and what you see over and over again as a constant drumbeat is Paul's use of this phrase, much more. Much more, the much mores of Romans 5 are given to us so that we would understand that the domain of life is not simply an opposite mirror image to the domain of death. Do not allow yourself to think of the domain of life in that way. The domain of life far surpasses the domain of death in every respect. It is not simply that by entering the domain of life, you no longer stand condemned. Condemned. Much more than that, you are now clothed in Christ's righteousness. Your sin has been dealt with. Undoubtedly, your sin has been washed away, but it does not stop there. The domain of life is not simply an opposite mirror image to the domain of life, the domain of death. Much more, we have been justified. Our sin has been dealt with, and now we have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. And the third comparison that Paul makes between the two domains is of our experience. He says, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much More will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So make the comparison. Look at the way in which Paul is comparing the two domains. In the first domain, verse 14, the only thing that reigned was death. Death reigns over the domain of death. But look who reigns in the domain of life. It is us that reign. It is grace that reigns. It is Christ that reigns. We are all caught up in this wonderful victory that is the domain of life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so our experience in the domain of life is wonderfully, wonderfully more than that in which it was in the domain of death. Not a mere opposite, but far more abounding. This is the domain of life that the gospel brings. And we must ever keep it before us. Now just as there has been a rise in secularism in our society over many decades, that has been helped and aided by lots of other societal trends individualism, and consumerism, and utilitarianism, all of these isms, and they all work together so as to produce, at least in part, the end result that life today is a lot more transactional than it used to be. It's One of the saddest realities of life in society today is just how transactional it is, and non-relational. The days are gone when it would be entirely appropriate to turn to the person beside you in the coffee shop and speak to them. You turn to the person on the plane and strike up a conversation. They think you're ill, there's something wrong with this person. Don't think that the transactional nature of our existence is not affecting your apprehension of the truth. The reason I say that is because I do believe all too often we have a very reduced understanding of the gospel, of the domain of life. One that we have boiled down to a mere transaction. So if I was to ask you today tell me the gospel perhaps you would say something to the effect of I've I've trusted in Christ for my salvation and he has forgiven my sins and you're not wrong you're absolutely right in so much as that is the gospel and then I say well keep speaking and now you draw a blank. Now there's, there's, there's no words coming out of your mouth. And you say, but I've told you the gospel. And the reality is the gospel is so much more. Now don't misunderstand me. The gospel is a transaction. There is a transaction that occurs when you put your faith in Christ. His robes for mine. My sin is dealt with. It was Paid for finally, utterly, totally, never to be accounted against me again. More than that, I have been clothed in his righteousness and made right with God. There has been a transaction at the cross. The gospel is a transaction, but it is so much more. If you search the scriptures and think about how God presents the gospel to us, so often he shows us it is a way of living. It is a manner of life. It is a domain, a sphere of existence. The domain of life is the domain of the gospel. And Paul has in view here, when he talks about us reigning in life, he has in view all of the glorious truths that he gives us in the first few verses of chapter 5 and all the glorious truths that he'll go on to give us in chapter 8. He has in mind that we would consider and appropriate to our hearts each and every day the wondrous reality that we were enemies with God. We were far off from Him. We were set against Him to tear down His glory every step of our way and elevate our own glory. That was the reality of our existence. And the gospel is such that now we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. The gospel is the glorious reality that we had no spiritual father, no everlasting, eternal father to care for us. We were orphans wrapped up in the bondage of our sin and our depravity. We were doing the bidding of the prince of the power of the air, and he did not care for us. He only cared to bring about our ruin and our destruction. And the gospel is now that by the spirit of adoption, we call God our father. The gospel is the reality that we had no everlasting hope. When our lives would come to an end over which we have zero control, God can end our life in His wisdom whenever He so chooses. And the reality is is we would stand before Him in judgment and be banished to everlasting, ongoing torment. And the gospel is now we look forward to the appearing of Christ because we know we do not face judgment in that day but a welcome into his kingdom. This is the domain of life. This is the reality for everyone who is in Christ. This is our means of existence. I was thinking, as I was pondering the domain of death and the domain of life, and the responsibility we have to keep both ever before us. An experience we had recently, Laura and I went to visit an art gallery in a city elsewhere out of state, and we were excited to go because there was one painting in particular that Laura had been reading about, and it was at this gallery, and then we looked into it, and in the room in which this one painting was, there were many other paintings that we were eager to see. There were some Monet's and there was a few Rembrandts, there was a William Turner and some Gainsborough in there, and we were eager to get to this room. So we arrived at the gallery and we started to follow the map so as to arrive. And the way they had configured the gallery, in order to get to this room, we had to first go through a different room where they had put lots of modern art. (laughs) It was modern in in the most extreme sense that you could possibly think of. And not only was it modern in its form, but the content, the things being depicted, just left a bad taste in the map. But you had to walk through this room. And, and so we went through and then we got to the room that we were excited to be in. And we took in those paintings for far longer than I thought we would. We just gazed upon the beauty of these pieces of art. And later on that afternoon, I thought about our experience and I just wondered whether The arrangement of the first room leading to the second was intentional. And I don't imagine it was, but it had an unintended effect. You have to keep in view the domain of death, so as to savor the domain of life. You have to, as a responsibility for all who are in Christ, bring before your mind's eye The truth of the domain of death, of where you were in Christ, before Christ, apart from Christ, where you were and where you are now in Christ. And it is our responsibility to turn over the glories of the scriptures, the truths that are given to us in chapters such as Romans 5, but all the way through the Bible that preach to us the glories of the domain of life so that we would know who we are. This is Christian anthropology. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you exist in the domain of life. And with both ever set before you, then the question comes how on earth did I get here? Paul has still not answered the question how did I move from the inescapable prison cell that was the domain of death so as to find myself each and every day in the domain of life, the answer is one word, namely grace. Verse 15, Paul says, the free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Again, verse 17 If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How do you move from the domain of death into life? It is by grace and grace alone. Now, what is the nature of this grace? I want to stress, if you have done the hard work of giving your attention to the context, if you have given your attention to the flow of the argument and traced out the contours of Paul's thought, understanding the nature of this grace is easy. It just oozes off the page. It's not It is not difficult to understand the nature of this grace if you have established the context correctly. So the first thing that we say is that this grace is unconditional. It has to be so. You were in the domain of death. You didn't have a foot in the domain of death. You existed in the domain of death. It reigned over you. You were doubly guilty because you had sinned in and with Adam. You couldn't escape. And therefore, God's grace had to be unconditional. It was not prefigured based upon a merit of your own. Because you're in the domain of death. It was not predicated upon something that you did because you were in the domain of death. God's grace did not come to you because it saw what you would become. Because you were in the domain of death. It is emphatically unconditional. If you look at verse 15, we see hints of this simply in the language Paul chooses. The grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. Paul even describes the grace as the grace of God, meaning before you had any experience of it, it was an attribute of God, a characteristic of himself. He is gracious before you were, before you had any awareness of the domain of death and the domain of life, God is gracious. It really has nothing to do with you. That is why Paul writes elsewhere to Titus, the grace of God appeared. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It was not that you worked with the grace of God and caused it to appear. It is not that you appealed to the grace of God and persuaded the grace of God to appear. You were dead in the domain of death and the grace of God appeared. It is unconditional. Not only that, but the nature of this grace is that it is irresistible. It is irresistible. Again, you were in the domain of death. You had no spiritual inclination towards the things of God. You did not have the wherewithal to appeal to God's grace, nor did you have the ability to think through whether you might accept God's grace by virtue of the fact that you existed in the domain of death, when it came to you, it caused you to live. Or, to put it another way, when Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb, Lazarus has no saying in whether he will come forth. He's speaking to a dead man. Lazarus, come forth. He doesn't get to deliberate whether he will obey or not. God's grace is irresistible. If we were to trace out Paul's argument in more detail, what we would find is a series of these causal relationships where God decreed, and it was, much like Genesis chapter 1 in the creative act, in the salvific act, God speaks and it happens. His grace is always, only, ever irresistible. And then finally, his grace is effectual. It never fails. When God calls a man from the domain of death, he finds himself in the domain of life, and that is where he will be for all eternity. He will reign alongside the Lord Jesus. He will reign with grace, and he will reign unto glory. His grace is effectual. Now, if you can keep in view the domain of death and the domain of life and the only means by which one can transfer from one domain to the other, namely grace, if you can keep these realities in view, it will shape the way you live. If you can ever bring before you the realities of the domain of death, the glories of the domain of life, and the only means of transferring, namely the saving grace of God, it will dispel all your fears. It will dispel the fears that consume you. The fears that eat you up at 1 a.m. in the morning when you allow your mind to race ahead and to ponder things that are not reality and start to embrace things that are not truth and they are eating you from the inside, if you can keep in mind the realities of the domain of death and the domain of life and the means of transferring to one to the other, namely grace, and the fact that now you reign in life with the Lord Jesus, it will inform your fears and dispel them. It is a great reality check to rehearse the gospel to yourself. If you can keep before you these truths of these two domains and the means of transferring to one to the other, it will change the way you conduct yourself as a believer in the church and in the world. It will grow in you an almighty zeal for the furtherance of the gospel. Because you will understand afresh each and every day where you have come from, the inescapable nature of that domain and your demise under the reign of death, and you will see the grace of the Lord Jesus insomuch as now that is not your reality. But you stand in an altogether different domain, not by anything you have done, but sheerly by the grace of God. And how could you respond with anything other than a desire to serve him and further the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Your zeal for service in the church, your zeal to proclaim the gospel to the lost, will only abound as you keep these realities ever before you. If you can keep before you these two domains and the single only means of moving from one unto the other, your love For God and your worship of him will increase. You will see his perfect plan of redemption executed for you through his son. Moving you from the domain of death to the domain of life by his grace. And your love will abound. Your worship will increase and your whole life will be lived with you saying give me another avenue by which I might glorify my father in heaven. And you will keep loving him and worshipping him until Christ calls you home. Pray with me to respond. Father, we praise you this morning for the glorious truth of your grace that we see set on display in your word. We bring to mind the reality of the domain of death. We all stand condemned because we have sinned in and with Adam, and we are guilty, and death reigns over humanity. We see the glorious truths of the domain of life, a sphere of existence that is altogether other, much more wonderful truths of a different domain, wherein Christ is the reigning head. We, are the recipients of gospel blessing. And we see that the only means by moving from one domain to the other is grace. The only possible means of being lifted up out of the domain of death, being placed ever more into the domain of life, is the saving grace of the gospel. It is unconditional. It is irresistible. It is effectual. And we praise you for this grace. Teach us to ever keep before us these realities so that our fears would be dispelled, so that our service would increase so that our love for you and our worship of you would be steadfast until the Lord Jesus comes. In his name, amen.